Hey, cashiers. We Have the Receipts podcast is coming at you live from Netflix is a Joke Fest in Los Angeles. Chris, are you kidding? No, Netflix is a joke, Courtney, but this is not one of them. Our listeners in LA have the chance to join us for a live recording of our podcast, We Have the Receipts, hosted by me, Chris Burns. And me, Courtney Revolution. Join us and a few surprise guests from your favorite Netflix reality shows on Saturday, May 4th at 1 p.m. at a secret location in Hollywood. To be announced. Get your tickets for the We Have the Receipts live show at todoom.com slash W-H-T-R. That's todoom, T-U-D-U-M dot com slash W-H-T-R. Tickets are limited. If you can't make it to the show, we still want to hear your beautiful voice. Leave us a message at speakpipe.com slash We Have the Receipts. You may even hear your own voice on the show. Grab a ticket at todoom.com slash W-H-T-R. And we'll see you on May 4th in Los Angeles. Bye, cashiers. Welcome to You Can't Make This Up, a companion podcast for Netflix original true crime stories. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, your host. Each episode, we take a close-up look at a true crime documentary or series, and I talk to the people who made them. We dive deep into the backstories and get answers to questions raised by what we just watched. Up this week, 13 Minutes, the second episode from Volume 1 of Unsolved Mysteries. I'll be talking with the episode's director, Jimmy Goldblum. 13 Minutes is the story of the abduction and murder of Patrice Endres. The 38-year-old hairstylist vanished from her salon in Cumming, Georgia in broad daylight during a 13-minute time frame. 20 months later, her body was found in a wooded forest six miles from her salon. She had never said anything about leaving. It just didn't make sense. There wasn't a struggle. Nothing was moved inside the salon. It's like she just walked out the front door, kept walking. A note to listeners, this episode contains spoilers, so make sure to watch the entire episode 13 minutes before listening on. Because of the COVID-19 pandemic, our guest was recorded in his home and not in a studio, and we appreciate your understanding that. Now, before we get into my conversation with Jimmy, here's a discussion I had with my real-life partner in crime, my husband, Kevin Flynn. Kevin, who you've heard on this podcast before, is an Emmy Award-winning former TV journalist, my true crime co-author and co-host of our other true crime podcast, Crime Writers On!, He also hosts the podcast, These Are Their Stories, the Law and Order podcast. Take a listen to our breakdown of the episode and our reactions to the real-life mystery behind it. All right, Kevin, Mm -hmm. episode two of Unsolved Mysteries, 13 minutes. Good episode. It is a good episode, and this is a case that involves no shortage of family drama. What do you think about how this plays out in the episode? Of course, we have Patrice, Uh who disappeared and her body was found 600 days later, back in 2004. Uh, We have her son, Pistol, Mm -hmm. from whom we hear a lot of this story, how it played out. What do you think of how the family drama plays into this case? Okay, well, first off, I think that there's a lot sort of bleeding over bad feelings, um, in sort of their normal interactions that become amplified when you have a sudden death like this. Hmm. But I think it helps to start like really at the beginning here where we have the day of Patrice's disappearance. April 15th, 2004. Right. So, okay, so she's got this um, this salon and tanning area. 
this was like a roadside business that yep. we hear Patrice's husband, Rob, help her set up. It had always been her dream. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we have this day where she has booked appointments and they're able to very closely narrow down the time in which she disappeared mm-hmm. to this 13 minutes. Yeah. So... It's not a big window. So first off, we, we there's a lot of discussion about what Patrice was saying before she disappeared. Mm-hmm. Like, there seemed to be a lot of talk. Well, we hear one thing about Pistol, her son, say she asked, like, if you could go anywhere, where would you go? Right. So does that mean she split on her own? In the end, we know that she hasn't. But also, her friend, who I guess who hangs out at the salon, sounds like fun. Well, she was talking about, yeah, I'm going to see you tomorrow. Now, on the day of, Patrice is agitated and distracted. Why do you think that is? We have multiple witnesses saying yeah. she's distracted. And I actually kept wondering one thing. We had mm-hmm. two clients, I think, in a row who said mm-hmm. that she wasn't attentive yeah. or that she was short on the phone. I couldn't help but wonder, and this is obviously speculation, is that not how somebody would behave if they were already in trouble in some way? Yeah. I just kept thinking, like, is there somebody hiding in the back room of the salon who has already come in? Threatened her, said, you know, as clients walked in, said, like, don't do anything that's going to make anybody's suspicions, you know, kind of come to the surface or anything. I kept wondering that. And I also kept wondering whether or not this was just about some other conflict she was having in her life that that wasn't present that day, but that was just sort of overshadowing. I'm not thinking that there's like somebody in the back room with a gun or something like that who's going to stay there for two hours waiting for her. Hmm. and that she's not going to signal in some way. I think the distraction, if anything, if it is related to the disappearance, it would mean that she was having problems with somebody and she anticipated something happening. Maybe not being kidnapped and murdered, but, you know, she was certainly agitated about something. Right. So what happened to her truck? That's really interesting because everybody says, and there's actually photos of it, I guess, from people having to run past the salon that, Patrice always parked her truck, backed into a mm-hmm. spot next to the building yeah. that her salon was in. And when she went missing, her truck had been pulled up to the front and was parked at an odd angle. Right. So one of the things that people wonder was whether or not she had pulled out to give somebody a jump start. Okay, yeah. And there's this incredible witness, Tammy, who mm-hmm. happens to be driving by, who even says she sees a second car parked out in front, which she describes very precisely as a Chevy Lumina. How fast was she driving by? I don't know. Because not only does she get essentially the make of this blue sedan, Mm -hmm. but she also sees that it was a Georgia plate and what kind of like special plate, she doesn't remember numbers. Like the wildlife plate or whatever. But also glimpses two figures, right? A tall person and a short person. Right. With long hair, she presumes is a woman. Mm Mm-hmm. Could be a guy with long hair, though, and somebody else a little shorter. And what, do they have hands on each other She says, or quote, they had hands on each other. I don't know if one had, had tripped, if one was pushing one down, if one was helping one up. It just did not look normal. So were you as surprised as I was that the police kind of jumped on this as a missing persons case right away? You know, somebody mm-hmm. shows up for their appointment, she's not there. Her car is parked out front. Yes, the register is empty and so forth, but... I was surprised how quickly the police sort of seemed to think something was definitely wrong here. Yeah, I mean, this is a different situation than, hey, you know, my spouse didn't come home tonight. This really seems to be an urgent situation because somebody walked in, her car's there, but the store is empty and the cash register is open Mm. with no money. So it immediately looks like a robbery. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have the hallmarks of so-and-so just ran off and we can wait 24 hours. 
So I'm not surprised that they got on and they got on it hard, mm-hmm. right, with dogs and choppers. And so, I mean, what we know now or we presume now is that whoever took her, you know, got out of the area quite far. Right. As we said, her body was found 600 days later, deep in the woods. Mm-hmm. So one of the most interesting characters we meet in this case is Rob, mm-hmm. Patrice's husband at the time of her death. Right. Not the father of her child, Pistol. Not Pistol's father, yeah. We, of course, meet him or sort of see him in the show yeah. later. Rob and Patrice initially had what appears to be a good relationship, but Rob- According and, to Rob. Yeah, exactly. Rob is in it. Rob gives, like, access in this- Right. Set. At first we see Rob, like, working on his car yeah. and talking- about the best seven years of his life, and we just think he's another person who's going to comment about Patrice. Mm-hmm. And then we find out that there's a lot more shade being thrown at him, right. especially by Pistol. I was really disturbed by this part of the story, I'll be honest with mm-hmm. you. I do know that step-family relationships are complicated, but I also know that I hear Rob say in this episode from his own mouth that he didn't like this child. Yeah. And Pistol was a child. He was 15 at the time. So what do you think of the fact that Rob, on the day his wife goes missing, on the day Mm -hmm. she goes missing, changes the locks on the house they shared in which Pistol lived, and Pistol cannot even go get his own belongings from the house in which he'd been living for years with his mother and Rob? Not good. (laughs) It's really not good. No. I mean, Rob, uh, uh, you know... Say what you want about whether or not he had anything to do with Patrice's death. This is not a nice guy. No. He seems, you know, kind of old now, and maybe we should feel sorry for him. But he was a really bad stepfather. He's kind of mean, and nobody is starting a fan club for him on Facebook. I've got to tell you, the thing that was most shocking to me about Mm. his interview was his sort of lack of perspective after time had passed. I mean, Pistol's an adult now. Mm -hmm. You do expect that with this trauma, he would be angry. He says himself that he was now Angel after his mother died. We do see that he has like the the long gun tattooed on his arm. Mm -hmm. He definitely sort of comes off as somebody. Yeah, his name is Pistol and he has a rifle tattoo. (laughs) Don't think that was on brand, Pistol. (laughs) But, you know, I don't blame an adult child for looking back at their childhood with a parent or step-parent and Uh saying, like, that was difficult. But one of the things that he says is he always felt like Rob was jealous of his relationship with his mother. Yeah. But then we hear Rob say Pistol was jealous of his relationship with Patrice. And that is messed up. That is. Yeah. That is. I mean, just as a, you know, as a step-parent, you would think that, yes, he certainly as the years have passed. It isn't like five years have passed, Right. To have some sort of understanding of like what that kid was going through, having lost his mother, mm-hmm. and just the resentment is still there. So it ends up we're wondering: Is it possible that Rob had a motive? And we we find out that there was talk behind his back, at least, that Patrice wanted a divorce. Right. Now we should acknowledge both things can be true. Yeah. Rob can be a jerk, and Patrice may have wanted to leave him, and. Somebody else could have been responsible for her disappearance right. and murder. And the episode does reveal that there were alternative suspects. There was Gary Hilton, who, you know, uh-huh. kind of gives off a bit of a creepy vibe. And then we have a second suspect, Jeremy Jones, who actually at one point confessed to killing Patrice. Mm-hmm. 
And then recanted. Yes, yes. You know, we have somebody you know, who who sees buzzards flying around and, you know, finds the skull in the woods. Mm-hmm. And this, so Patrice's body is discovered now, so everyone knows she hasn't run away. She's actually dead. Mm-hmm. Can't both things be true? I mean, maybe Rob has nothing to do with this, but it's understandable why people would ask that question, right? Sure, because he's not likable. I was going to say, I don't like him. And so you want to root against him, but this is serious stuff, and he has an alibi. I never hang on to the time-stamped receipt from the gas station when I go. I just pump and I go. I don't need a receipt. Fortunate for him, I guess. And then also turning up someplace else, you know, in the time that he seems to be covered Mm. by, you know, being in a couple of places. The authorities said they can't eliminate him, but he doesn't look like an obvious suspect. And he's never been charged. So another detail we learn about Rob, which I don't think makes him more relatable, is the extended time that he decided to spend with Patrice's skeleton after her body was discovered. And we, on camera, see him tell us that story, and then he opens up the urn and the bag with her ashes Mm -hmm. for the camera crew. Again, this is not in any way implying that his relationship with Patrice's remains has any bearing on his innocence or guilt in this case. That struck me as an odd thing to choose to do on camera. And you even sort of get a sense that the production crew is like, you sure you want to like do that in front of us? Yeah. What did you think of that scene? The fact that he kept the remains in the closet. Yeah. As you know, he professed that he slept with the, the cremains in his bed for a year. Yes. To kind of snuggle with it. And, you know, it's his form of mourning. But his idea of moving on is to just put her up in the closet. Mm. Not someplace. Look. I'm not saying that that's, you know, sign of guilt of something. It's just sign of kind of a not nice guy. Right. Because also, did you catch that passing comment at the end how he wasn't going to give any of the cremains to Pistol? Yeah. He specifically said that. There's a guy with a grudge. Yeah. And I don't blame Pistol for being angry. You mm-hmm. know, I, I imagine he's not going to be less angry after he watches this. So cases that really depend on a very precise timeline, as this one does. Mm-hmm. Everybody's whereabouts are somewhat accounted for, especially our victim, Patrice's, with her appointment book in her salon and someone showing up. I mean, she was supposed to be at that place at that time. But then also Rob has his very precise timeline of receipts that are time stamped and so forth. Don't you think stories where there is such a precise timeline can sometimes be even more vexing than when you don't know? Because there's less room for Mm -hmm. guessing, right? It had to be in this specific time. I mean, it really is a very, very tight window. Yeah, because you would think it's easier to eliminate folks because you're right. Whatever happened, happened in that small window between the last haircut customer leaving and the next one coming in. Again, it's it's almost, uh, for the perpetrator, pretty lucky. That's like jumping into a barrel from a very high ladder. It just, you have to hit that just right because it'd be very easy for the next customer to come in as something is happening. Right. So I just kept thinking, does somebody who meant to kill her have access to her book or know kind of what her day looks like and know, mm-hmm. knows when to come in? Or with the empty cash register, was this a random crime? Was this somebody who walked in off the street, saw that she was alone there, uh, figured there might be money and, and took the opportunity? See, I don't think so, because why go to the trouble of taking her, killing her, bringing her body way out into the woods. Mm. I I don't know. That just doesn't seem to fit with a strong-arm robbery. Well, it certainly seems like the police have a lot of questions. 
they do, and they know more than they're telling. You course. think so? Oh yeah, I mean they've they've got some details that they're holding back. Yeah, as they said, if all these people come forward and they say they want to work with unsolved mysteries, they do it because they think there's something here that one more bit of information can push this over. You know, I'm hoping that somebody who knows something more about everybody's behavior that day could maybe you know drop a dime. Although it's not a dime anymore, right? It's like a quarter, right? <laughs> <laughs> if you can even find a payphone. Well, hopefully somebody comes forward after watching this episode with some information that helps, right? Oh, yeah. That's the whole point. That is the whole point. All right, Kevin, I can't wait to talk about episode three with you. Thank you so much for chatting about this one with me. Oh, sure. Thanks again to Kevin Flynn, my partner in crime, and my favorite person to watch Netflix with. Now, here's my interview with the director of 13 Minutes, Jimmy Goldblum. Jimmy Goldblum, it's a real pleasure talking to you about this episode. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's uh, it's going to be really fun to talk through this again. There are a lot of really complicated family dynamics in this case, in addition to the mystery of the case itself. And I know that can make it especially difficult when you're approaching people and talking to people and there is a lot of heightened emotion. Can you just talk about what it was like picking through that stuff as you were conducting the interviews for this 13 Minutes episode? You know, I I give some benefit of the doubt that we don't always know what happens in our friends' marriages. Like, I've seen some ostensibly perfect marriages where, you know, behind the scenes, you know, when people go home at night, the reality is very different. So... Clearly, there was a dynamic that you could see playing out in the episode where, you know, Rob had one version of what his marriage to Patrice was. Pistol had a version of what it was. You know, I think Patrice's friends and her family had a version. And I think for us, the way that we sort of approached everything is like, you know, come in with an open mind. Try to put any biases or or any sort of preconceived notions outside the door when we walk into a room and just give people space to tell us who they are. And uh, and I think that's that, you know, I, I would tell the crew, like every room that we're in, that person is our hero. So let's mm. treat them as such and see what they tell us. And I think that was the way to do it. And I think that's how you get the sort of, you know, revelatory moments that I hope come through in the episode. What's really interesting about the case of, you know, Patrice's being missing and then being found murdered 600 days later is that. You know, in addition to all these factors around the family dynamics and all these questions about what her relationship with Rob was really like, there is this incredibly precise timeline where it actually is known when something happened because she had an appointment book, because somebody left and then the next person arrived and she was gone. So can you just talk about the precision of that timeline and and maybe about the possibilities that that opens up for investigators, but also closes down? I mean, it it can be complicated, right? I, I think for me, it was really amazing actually seeing how the investigators put that together. You know, the fact that she could have a client that leaves you know, I think around 1137. And then, you know, she's taking a phone call at 1150. And in those 13 minutes, you have the entirety of what the case could be, you know, and then you have that, you know, maybe a gray car, maybe a blue Lumina, we don't know. But you know, a car very much in that sedan family that's, you know, seen by two different people in that window. It's it was really exciting. And I think for me that it's, you know, in filmmaking, 
we, we like to say that, you know, constraints can create creativity, that it's actually like the blank canvas is the hardest thing. And I think in some ways, you know, I could almost apply that same logic to how, how a case works and that having those parameters of what's possible is actually where you can see everything. Mm. Well, I do think it does open up some speculation with that tight timeline. You know, was somebody lying in wait, you know, outside the building, you know, waiting for this guy to leave after his haircut? Was somebody maybe already there? I mean, I I found myself wondering when I was talking to my husband, Kevin, about it. Like, what could somebody have been like in the back room, you know, and she knew they were there. And that's what accounted for her. What people say was off-putting manner that day. Or was this just a crime of opportunity where somebody came up to the building, saw that she was alone there, thought there might be money? I mean, did you find yourself weighing all these different possibilities as you were unpeeling the layers of this case? Yeah, I, I think for me, I get really psychologically motivated. So I get really drawn to motivation and what people's possible motivations could be. So, you know, of course, you start with the family and you begin to speculate, like, you know, did anyone in her family, like her husband? I mean, even in the beginning, I was like, maybe Pistol wasn't in school that day. And then I very, very quickly after meeting him, ruled that out as a possibility. But I think you start, you know, with just any sort of possible motive And then, you know, certainly the fact that two serial killers independently were implicated in this crime at different points, it's hard not to let your imagination go wild. And I hope it comes across in the episode, but she's on a very busy road. People are driving Mm. by there all the time. And, And so there's a lot of possible witnesses. So if you're trying to essentially get her out of there, you have to move so quickly to not be seen so it's really i mean the fact that there was no i mean there was no real discernible evidence no blood no overturned furniture in the salon itself to me i i began to go to a place of like okay she walked out of there willingly but you can't know right we have that incredible witness, the one who did identify the car as a blue Chevy Lumina, which is very specific. And I'm very impressed that even if the model isn't quite right, that she'd have the wherewithal to, like, put a model on the car as she drove by. Uh, but she does talk about an interaction outside the salon between Patrice and somebody who may have been a long-haired man or a woman uh, with hands all over each other. I mean, that's certainly intriguing and opens up the possibility that... She maybe thought she was going to have one kind of interaction, having moved her car and so forth, and it ended up being an entirely different kind of interaction, right? Yeah. The the possibility has been named that someone had come in and asked her for a jump on their car and that, you know, then that's when she could have been attacked or kidnapped. It again, it's it could have been anything. It's that's what makes the case so unbelievably perplexing and so scary is that Mm. it happened before noon on a bright Georgia day. And really, it could have been anything. And she just Mm. disappeared in 13 minutes. You know, it's it it is very frightening in, in all those respects. Now, Pistol, Patrice's son, is still extremely affected by his mother's death and really angry about, you know, his life, you know, before she died and kind of right after she died. Before we get into the details of his relationship with Rob, which I think are interesting, uh, maybe or maybe not related to the crime, but interesting in terms of the way the dynamics have played out. What was it like talking with Pistol? He seems like a very intense man. You know, I felt really sorry for Pistol. 
I felt really sorry for Pistol. Um, I think that his mom was his best friend. I think that they had an incredibly close relationship. And I think that sometimes when we get, you know, assigned a story like this, right? So I'm in a case where I'm a director and I get assigned this great mystery about this woman who vanishes within 13 minutes. And there's, and it is really, I don't know, exciting to like get into all the speculation. And then you sit in a room with someone like Pistol and you're like, right, this is actually what it's about. You know, this is about like a kid who was deprived the opportunity of growing up with his mother. And, you know, we we come from very different backgrounds. You know, I'm I'm like a nebbish Jew from Philadelphia and he has an AR-15 (laughs) tattooed on his forearm. But like, I think notice that's noticeable on film, certainly. And it's like, (laughs) you know, I we're different, you know, we're very different. But I think for me, I was really, really privilege to have the opportunity to just sit and learn from him and to give him space to tell his story and you know he has had a girlfriend for a really long time who um you know is not in the episode but you know he got down and started talking about his mom and afterwards she came up to me she's like that's the first time i've seen pistol cry in 10 years you know so he's been compartmentalizing Mm. a lot of trauma and you know i'm a big believer Mm. that the only way out is through And so it was really, I mean, a privilege for me to kind of go on that journey with him. One of the things that really struck me, I mean, I should uh, tell you because I think it informs my opinion about this. I am a parent and a step parent. I know it can be really complicated to have a family that is blended where there are, you know, kids in the house that are somebody else's kids. And those relationships can be tricky and difficult. But the thing that really felt like a gut punch to me was hearing Pistol talk about his relationship with his mom and how Rob felt about it. And then hearing Rob talk about how he just didn't like this child. And we have to remember Pistol was like 15 at the time. They lived together at this point for a few years. So he knew him since he was a little kid. And he very openly talked about just not liking him. I think Pistol was enormously jealous, for the lack of a different term, about the closeness of Patrice's and my relationship. One of the things that we struggled with is she didn't discipline him. And he just ran crazy. I just didn't see any future in him when I was with him, to tell you the truth. Even if Patrice had survived, that is difficult and painful. And I don't think can be... I don't think we can really understate how traumatizing it can be for a child to live with an adult who's just open about disliking you, right? Yeah. I mean, I couldn't agree more. I think it's, you know, I think that you can almost bifurcate parenting into two distinct camps. I think there's parents who understand that their job is to raise the child, or there's parents who believe that it's the child's role to make their lives easier. But to have a step-parent who who feels that way to the extreme and your primary caregiver, your mother, who you're absolutely close to in, 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 in every which way, disappears, I, I think that's a compounded trauma that I can't even fathom. Um, you know, look, I mean, Rob has been 
investigated to every end, you know, and whether he's a primary suspect is, you know, you can hear Mitch Posey in the episode say that he's not. I mean, it doesn't rule out him, you know, having hired a contract killer or anything like that. But for the most part, you know, Rob has been investigated and I think he did an incredible disservice to Pistol. That's my personal opinion. You know, I don't moralize when I'm on set, but I will say that, you know, if I were a stepdad and and the mother of my 15 year old stepson had disappeared without a trace, like I would have been concerned about that kid, whether I thought he was a pain in the ass or not. Right. And the day that she disappeared, he locked the doors of the home that changed the locks and the doors in the home that they shared that. I mean, from what I gather, Pistol had lived in for several years. It wasn't like he was visiting on the weekends. He lived there. What did you make of that decision of Rob's to do that? I mean, he he talks about that in the episode, why he did that. Did you buy Rob's explanation for why he changed those locks? I think there's a really salient point there, which is that he did it within 24 hours. So hmm. I think at that point in the case, you know, you have police dogs out, you have the town going through the woods, you have ATVs, you know, everyone's searching. And so there was still the idea that there's that 24 hour window, right? So there's still that idea right. that Patrice could come back. So the fact that he felt comfortable enough to change those locks within a 24-hour window when the whole town was operating under the belief that Patrice is missing and still alive, you know, I'll say in terms of things that stoked my imagination on set, that was a major one. It certainly stoked my imagination, too. You're not alone with that. I think that anybody watching this episode, that's a question that pops, is... I don't think it was reasonable to assume that she was never coming back within that 24-hour period. And, you know, both things can be true. You know, as Kevin and I talked about, Rob could be a terrible husband and an awful stepfather, and something could have happened to Patrice totally unrelated to his being a terrible husband and a terrible stepfather. Like, both things could be true, right? Absolutely. And that's why I'm not a detective. <laughs> you know, my biases run wild. But these guys are like, look, we do not work on speculation. We don't work on theory. We work on facts. And the fact is, is that, you know, they operate in a universe that can feel very chaotic and where two things that, you know, can lead, you know, feel very correlated aren't necessarily leading towards the actual end result. But that being said, I, I will say that you know, there was a second component to your question, which was just like, let's forget about the fact of like, you know, whether Rob was acting in a way that felt, you know, I would say suspicious. I think the other point of it is like, I don't think that was what Pistol needed. I don't think that's what Pistol needed at that time. I think he, I think it affected him deeply because I don't think he got the care that he needed in that time. Right, right. I'm sure that he, to some extent, felt that way beforehand, too. I mean, if you're living with a man who openly doesn't like you and you're still living with him, like that can be traumatic, too, you know, despite how close he was to his mom. You, um, you know, I know enough about filmmaking to know because I could tell from the changing light and so forth. Looks like you spent a lot of time with Rob at his home interviewing him. Uh, what was that like? 
you know, Rob, Rob was a very intriguing character. He had some hobbies that did not necessarily end up in the episode, but they were pretty intriguing to watch. Uh, his Like what? I have to know. Uh, he loves making bullets. Um, he has a station in his basement huh. where he just has tons of different shells, different gunpowders, and he's just packing in bullets all the time. He just loves doing it. Loves making bullets. Wow. And uh, hmm. and so that was intriguing. You know, he's got a new wife, Dawn, who uh, who's very, very kind. Um, she was really, really sweet to the entire team. Uh, you know, and he's got he has like a photo album of Patrice out, you know, that Dawn and him kind of went through looking at their old memories. I feel about Rob like I wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt and believe that he was heartbroken about Patrice's having gone missing and then been murdered and i just wanted to hear his side of the story and i think for us we just spent a whole day with him gave him the space to show us who he was tell us how he felt about things and i hope that his truth (laughs) and who he is came out in the episode I mean, it can be a tricky tightrope, right? Because when you are talking to someone like Rob, he is the central figure or one of the central figures in this case. It can't be denied. I mean, the police investigated him and, you know, he's talking about it. He's participating. So but there is this tightrope that you walk between, you know, not feeling like you're betraying your subject, i.e. Rob. Like, you know, he's probably not going to like everything that's in this episode and not betraying the audience, because as an audience member, you watch this and you're like, yes, I want to know more about whether or not he could have been involved, whether or not he could have hired somebody, why it was he happened to have this time-stamped gas receipt, which, you know, maybe he's the kind of person who keeps all of his receipts, but not many people do. You know, it is a tightrope, right? Because you are betraying one or the other, or you're betraying, you know, everyone and just showing what you got on film, which I think what you ended up doing, right? Just showing us what you got, let the chips fall where they may with Rob, and let us ask our questions as an audience. Yeah, and I think like one of the best things that you can do as a documentary director is to not project your own psychological map onto other people, to to really mm-hmm. come from the place that people are different and think about things differently, feel about things differently, and just really approach with curiosity and openness. And so... I actually believe that just by asking Rob over and over again, who are you? How do you feel about this? How did you respond to each of these events? And kind of just going through the timeline from, you know, before Patrice went missing about growing up and, you know, or watching Pistol grow up all the way through to the aftermath, you know, just approaching him with curiosity and openness. I I really believe it's the the best approach. And I think the I think the thing that for me will stand out in the episode the most, you know, the thing that stood out for me from filming this episode the most was when he went into his closet, went to the bottom of his shoe closet and pulled out the shoebox with Patrice's remains. And then he pulled out that knife that none of us knew he was carrying and he flipped it open and opened that box and just the way that his hands went over the remains. And there's Patrice. This small one pound bag are the cremains for Patrice. It's the first time I've seen this bag. It's somewhat emotional, actually. 
sorry. I'd never share these ashes with anybody, particularly pistol. Yeah. That's the thing that We're, that was a surprise to you, obviously, because it's you, you could hear, you know, it almost seemed like you were asking him, are you sure you want to do that? Right. It was it was a and sort of an unspoken understanding, which is that I'm not going to ask you to do this. But if it feels meaningful to you, if it feels important to you, then do it. Yeah, of course. You know, you haven't looked at these in 15 years. You know, you I, I mean, I guess ever because they were given to you in that box that you slept with for, you know, years. But, you know, I wasn't going to I'm not I'm not the type of director who's certainly going to push people to yeah, I'm ne- I'm never going to purposefully try to re-traumatize someone. So if this is a traumatic experience right. that you're having, like please don't do it, but if it feels meaningful to you, go right ahead. And you know, I think he felt really good just being with her remains in that moment. Mm. Uh, I think it came across and that's definitely the part of the episode that just really, I don't know. I just, I just felt like every time you're filming documentary, you come in with a preconceived notion of like, all right, let's get this, this and this. And then there's these sort of moments that you can never really account for. And it to me, it felt like that moment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that followed by a moment where he talks about not, you know, sharing them at all with her son, which, you know, again, sticks out (laughs) about their relationship and about sort of his failings as a stepfather. Yeah, I guess I the thing that I wish I could understand more just for personal curiosity and not necessarily in, in terms of its meaningfulness towards the case is just what did you hate about that kid so much? Like, right. what was it? Right. You know, like, I just, I don't know. Like, I dislike people in my life for sure, you know. But what was it that made you hate this 15-year-old that much? I don't get it. Now, let's talk a little bit about the investigation. Um, Agent Posey says that Rob's whereabouts, you know, don't make his involvement with a crime impossible, but they do make it improbable. But the police, as you said, did investigate him. I'm wondering, did they go into the home to gather evidence? Did they, you know, bring him in for questioning? Was it a really thorough investigation as you were able to discern or not while you were making this episode? Yeah, it was definitely a major question I was asking. Um, And they investigated him very thoroughly. I mean, he was brought in for questioning multiple times. They combed through that house thoroughly. And, you know, as Rob points on the episode, he had a receipt from a gas station and a check-in timestamp at work that physically placed him far from the crime scene, you know, but I think it doesn't negate the possibility, as as Mitch Posey pointed out, that he could have hired a contract killer or or found potential loopholes. But, you know, as, as Posey said, it's improbable, not impossible. And so... I will say that he was thoroughly, thoroughly investigated by some very talented investigators. And so if it's it's still an unsolved mystery because either Rob didn't do it or Rob is incredibly good at covering his tracks. Right. Can you talk a little bit about the intersection of these two serial killers in this case, Gary Hilton and Jeremy Jones and you know, where that stands as far as this investigation goes. I mean, one of them confessed and then later recanted. Can you just talk about those circumstances a little bit? Yeah. So Gary Hilden murdered this young hiker, Meredith Emerson, in the Dawson County woods where Patrice's body was also found. And 
he was a different category of killer than even Jeremy Jones. Like Jones was a deviant, like a drug addict, a lost soul. He was a racist, a misogynist. But but Hilton was, you know, he was like the devil. Like if you were to compare them, Jones was a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde character. You know, you could talk to him and sometimes almost feel like you were speaking to a person with a sense of humanity and regret. And then that demon would later emerge, um, you know, probably when he was on meth. Um, but with Hilton, it was more akin to like a predator, like like the thing or Jaws yeah. or like a monster that is much colder, you know, that that that, that kills because it wants to and, and it can. So the fact that they were both credible suspects in Patrice's murder is, to me, unbelievably unsettling. You know, mm. you know, she was just a mother and like a small business owner and, and a small town girl in that archetypal way in every respect. So, you know, the brutality is really senseless. And, and, and that's why I hope the episode can bring some level of closure to the case to restore some justice to this chaotic universe that allows for the presence of the Gary Hiltons and Jeremy Joneses of the world. I think Jeremy Jones in particular is a really interesting figure because he did at one point confess and we hear in the episode that he may have said some things that only the killer would know. He drew the diagram of where the cars were, uh, but there's no evidence to link him and he recanted. Is he still in the frame? And I'm curious, did you try at all um, to reach out to him or, or look into him more for the episode? So... You know, the production, specifically Terry Muir, who was one of the original creators of Unsolved Mysteries, you know, she knew this case so well, you know, and she approached these cases with an enormous amount of integrity to the facts. So I think talking to convicted serial killers obviously would make for fantastic television. But I think a good question is, would it also overshadow the facts of the case and, and in some ways decenter the tragedy of what happened to Patrice and her family. And I think so. Like, this is always a tightrope, you know, that you need to walk with true crime. You know, these sensational, horrifying things happen in these cases. But if you center them in a way that could potentially be perceived as superfluous, then I think it can teeter over into exploitation. And I think with Jeremy Jones in particular he's still considered a suspect, right? Like they're not ruling anything out. You know, Detective Birch in Alabama believes that the things he knew were too crazy to make up. But there's also just the possibility that this guy wanted to tell, you know, a crazy yarn about a story that he watched on TV in prison. And if he could confess to it, maybe the detectives would take him out for a day and give him a cheeseburger and a milkshake, you know? Like you can never really rule out what, someone like Jeremy Jones's motives are. So I, I think that for us, um, it didn't seem like it was, I, I felt like it would kind of take away from the emotion and the intensity of the story if we actually put him on camera. It, it would kind of take us away from the larger point. No, I mean, it makes sense. I mean, if, and also, I mean, to be honest, with the facts of the case being what they are, if it was very likely that he did it, it would not be an unsolved mystery. It would be a solved mystery um, and, and you know, probably not appropriate story to tell on this show. I mean, this really does seem more of an open 
case than an open and shut case for sure. So I'm wondering, did the medical examiner analyze Patrice's remains and other stuff that the cops know about her killing that that we can't know, that they're holding back? But was there that medical examiner investigation? And if so, do you know anything about that? So Mitch Posey said the human body has 206 bones and the forensic investigators walked out of the woods behind Zion Church with almost all of them, right? So you can't say for sure, but the likelihood is that the missing bones were taken by animals. Um, But Patrice had dental work done on her teeth and it was actually through studying the bridge on her teeth and the skeleton that they were able to identify her. So (laughs) that said... What I imagine you're asking was, you know, sort of implied in that question is, was there any blunt force trauma or anything out of the ordinary with the skeleton? And I think, unfortunately, like, I'll have to let that remain a mystery. So how hopeful are you in this 13 minute window uh, in which something happened to Patrice? Obviously, we have a couple of witnesses. We have some suspects. How hopeful are you? that putting this episode out into the world will lead to a tip. Somebody calling in that may not have wanted to get involved all these years ago and is now willing to share what they know, or perhaps somebody else who drove by who didn't realize they had seen something that day. Are you hopeful that a tip will come from, you know, a fruitful tip will come from this episode? I just hope that Cosgrove Mirror has like gotten some really good servers for unsolved.com because I have a feeling that they're going to get inundated when they when this show with a quarantine audience meets you know (laughs) like internet sleuthing wasn't a thing when the original unsolved mysteries was on the air so i just have a feeling that this episode is going to get picked apart and one thing that i realized on set was that the blue chevy lumina i don't know the degree to which that part of the case was thoroughly investigated at the time I think it was something that emerged a little bit later and I'm really, really hopeful that people in Dawson County or Forsyth County or any of these surrounding areas are going to see the episode and think about that Chevy Lumina and that it could lead us to a place where this could potentially be solved. I really do think that that is the key to the case. The fact that two independent witnesses both saw basically the same car around the same time. I just think everything is right there. And as you know, as much as we can talk about Jeremy Jones and Gary Hilton and and even Rob, perhaps, uh, I think that that car is the thing that will get the police and the investigators to where they need to go in order to solve this thing. I was wondering that too, Jimmy Goldblum. 13 Minutes is the episode of Unsolved Mysteries. Thank you so much for talking to me about it. Your directing is great. I really enjoyed the episode. It was really, really lovely to talk to you. And thank you for letting me talk through these things. I haven't had a chance for a minute and it's been it's been wonderful. We have reached the end of this week's episode. Thanks again to director Jimmy Goldblum. Loyal fans of Unsolved Mysteries might remember these words from the late and irreplaceable former host of the show, Robert Stack. For every mystery, someone somewhere knows the truth. Perhaps that person is someone listening. Perhaps it's you. If you have any leads on what might have happened to Patrice Endres, go to unsolved.com to share tips and to learn more about the hundreds of other mysteries covered by the series. And for more of my takes on true crime and how we cover it in the media, check out my podcast, Crime Writers On. 
If you like You Can't Make This Up, please subscribe to, rate, and review this show and share it with friends. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for our next episode on Unsolved Mysteries, Episode 3, House of Terror. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. Our music is by Hansdale Sue. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening.